Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. Delighted to say I'm here with Nick Bloom. Nick is a, a fellow Brit and a <laughs> professor of economics at Stanford. Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. And you have become something, uh, well, something, something of a uh, phenomenon in terms of your speaking out on what's happening with working from home. I've seen you all over the internet and uh, I've read your stuff. So uh, I'm delighted to have you here to talk a little bit about your experience of studying this working for home phenomenon and how you, seeing, how you see it playing out. Um, so why don't you start with just telling us the research that you'd initially done on working from home and what your found findings were pre-COVID uh, for people working from home. Sure. So I had a kind of weird journey into this. Uh, so I've been teaching. I've been in Stanford since 2005. You can hear I'm British, but I moved to the US back then. Uh, and must have been, it was like 2009, I was teaching a graduate, so a PhD course, and there's about 20 students in the class. One of the students in the class that's sitting at the back row is a slightly older uh, Chinese student. I mean, that's pretty standard, you know, about more than half our students international. And at some point, I started talking to him, and I realized who this was. It was someone called James Liang that was the co-founder uh, and of CEO, and at this point, chairman of a company called Trip, which is like a huge uh, multinational travel agency business. It's kind of like Expedia, but it's dominant in China. It was worth about $6 billion at this point on NASDAQ. James owned like 5% of the stocks. So I was like, oh, you know, this person is sitting in my, in my like PhD class. So I was obviously kind of in, in get him. I and you'd be intrigued about talking to someone that founded and set up and run this really successful company. And then in talking to James, he said they had a big issue currently, which was they were growing really fast, but their headquarters in Shanghai and their offices were being restricted by the fact that office space was so expensive. So they said, look, they're thinking of moving to a working from home program, but they don't know that it's going to work out. They're going to pilot it. And James and I kind of got talking and came up with the idea of running a scientific experiment, what we call a randomized control trial. So what we did was we took a thousand people from two divisions, hotel and airfed, asked them who wanted to work from home for four out of five days a week. In fact, only half of them did. But then amongst those half, we randomized them by even odd birthdays. So it turned out that they drew a ping pong ball out of an urn that said odd. So if you were born on like the first, third, fifth, seventh, ninth of the month, you work from home for the next nine months. And if you were born on, say, an even birthday, then you got to stay in the office. And so we set this up and then they, you know, let the thing run. In fact, they let it run for two years. And, you know, I, I don't want to hold the suspense anymore, but, you know, they found the findings were kind of you know, amazing, which is why I got loads of coverage. And I wrote a lot of research on it before COVID, which is working from home increased productivity by 13%. Right. That's the big massive. headline number, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It was, you know, C-Trip's view was, uh, so their view is we're going to save money on space, but people can go home and goof off. They kind of thought they'll watch TV or they'll turn on the radio or it's the joke about the three great enemies of working from home or the, the fridge, uh, the television and the bed. And, you know, one of them will get you. And it turned out that wasn't true. In fact, they were significantly more productive. And so because of that, before COVID, I was kind of, I gave a TEDx talk and did a lot of media as held up as kind of this big proponent of working from home. Um, and for those people, for C-Trip, it was obviously highly effective, but it's worth pointing out. And I'm happy to chat about COVID now that definitely not everyone wanted to do it. I mean, to be clear, only half of people signed up. And at the end of the experiment, they relaxed it and said it's been so successful anyone can join, but anyone in the experiment can go back into the office. And in fact, two thirds of them that initially volunteered returned to the office and said, it's incredibly lonely. And interestingly enough for COVID, the peak, the most positive period was three months in, which is basically where we are now. That was the honeymoon. 
So back in, you know, when we were doing this experiment, three months in people are super enthusiastic. By six months, they were beginning to be like, oh. And by nine months, they were so lonely and fed up. And, you know, they just rushed back into the office in droves when the thing was over. Or at least 50% of them did. Yeah, exactly. But, but, but 50% of them were like, no, no, I'm staying. I'm cool. I, I love this, right? Yeah, there's, you can't predict this stuff. There's this incredible churn. There are huge numbers of people, you know, up, up front, 50% of people volunteered, 50% didn't. Then at the end of the experiment, of those that volunteered, half of them changed their mind again. And then some of them that didn't volunteer, you know, basically is really, as you know, many of us are discovering now, if you'd ask everyone how would working from home turn out three months from now, would have huge variety of views. And in fact, some people would feel much better, some people much worse. Most firms would have been very positive. So of the firms we've started, I've run a lot of surveys and firms are about 80% say they're overwhelmingly happy with working from home. Us as employees, less so, generally positive, but there's an increasing amount of people complaining. You can imagine about loneliness and isolation, et cetera. And that's only going to get worse as time goes on. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, what, and the other thing I saw that was interesting in your piece was you said that, and I didn't realize it was this low, actually, before COVID, 4% of people regularly work from home. It's gone up to around 40%, and you're expecting it to go down to around 20%. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So the best, it's gone up. The best figures were, well, we often think about in terms of percentage of days worked at home. So before COVID, across the US and you know, the UK and Australia, much of Europe looks honestly pretty similar. Before COVID, only 5% of days were spent full-time working from home. So I know lots of people work in the mornings and evenings on weekends, but the main thing for commuting and for office space is that like full-time. So there's only 5%, so 95% of working days in, in the, on business premises, basically offices, shops, factories. During COVID, that's gone up eightfold to 40%, which is an enormous increase. So, you know, uh, basically under COVID, Everyone that can work from home, which is roughly 40% of all jobs, is working from home full time. Post-COVID, from a lot of survey evidence from talking to firms, the rough view is people that can work from home will get to do so half time. So typically would be in the office, maybe Monday, Wednesday, Friday, at home, Tuesday, Thursday. That's like in you know, 2021, once we have a vaccine. Uh, and that's going to give us roughly 20% of working days at home. So a fourfold long run increase at working at home. Yeah, which is yeah, which is dramatic and extraordinary, right? And you you, you talk about it in one of your essays about this is sort of forced us to get to make the startup investment, right? So this yep. huge chunk of the population who can work from home are now equipped to work from home, and it's happened almost instantaneously, right? It's, it's extraordinary, it's, isn't it? It's amazing. I mean, right now, you know, another figure if we look in the terms of uh, the share of GDP created at home versus in, uh, in business premises, around two thirds of economic activities carried out at home. So, you know, if you told me back in January, that you know, the UK, the US, Europe would basically be working from home economies, I would have thought you're nuts. You know, like, you have to be kidding me. It's like a very, it's a, it's a fringe activity right now. Only 15% of Americans ever work from home and only 2% do it permanently. And it's suddenly the predominant thing. And in fact, I think medically, oddly enough, it's a huge driver in our battle against COVID. Because if we couldn't have been able to run the economy reasonably well working from home, we'd have given up the lockdown, you know, within a couple of weeks because it had been disastrous economically and a return to the office. So it's turned out to be like an invaluable tool, the fact we can work so well. Right. Right. And the other thing we talked about a little bit before, with the, the, the call was that this, this affects different groups in different ways, right? Yeah, it's, you know, the problem is, in some ways, it's great uh that we can work from home but it's a 
big issue, I think, with inequality. So just to be clear, if you look under, you know, before COVID even, people who are much significantly more likely to work from home. So you're 15 times more likely to be working from home if you had a university degree versus if you left school at 16. Uh, that's true. That gap's very similar under COVID. So why is that? We just imagine the types of jobs that, you know, basically us, I presume most of the listeners, you know, ha have the, the kind of college, gra university graduates. They tend to be a lot more management, uh, professional jobs. They're jobs that you can do at distance, often involve a lot of computing. So you don't have to be in the office every day. And in fact, you can get a lot, most of these jobs you can do reasonably well at home. Not perfectly, but pretty well. If you look at the kind of jobs that people that left school at 16 do, on average, they tend to be much more face-to-face. -face. So a lot more jobs in you know, restaurants, accommodation, et cetera, so they can't do it. Now, you may think, well, look, the government's coming to the furlough scheme or the payment protection plan in the US, et cetera. It's kind of yes, but you know, they, that money's gonna run out. That money, those generous payments is only gonna last you know, in the US till July and the UK, I don't know, you know, later in the autumn it will run out. And so that's one issue, that won't be there forever and the recoveries can take longer than that. The other issue is it's not great being unemployed for your long run career. So what I fear is going to be an explosion of uh, inequality rising yet further after the pandemic, because people that can work from home have gone on, built up experience, their career is progressing. People that couldn't have kind of had this period of you know, backpedaling. We know from lots of studies that not working for six to nine months is really costly in terms of long run earnings. So yeah, that makes me nervous. That's a definitely a downside of the, the explosion of working from home. Yes. And we were talking about, about this a little bit before the call, and I know it's, I know it's sensitive, but the other clearly something else that is emerging in front of our eyes right now it seems to me is a is a political polarization uh we're seeing it seems to me increasing numbers of people drawn to either the far left or or the far right and we're starting to see some of this spill out onto our our streets and you know it's certainly making me worried and i'm i'm guessing others worried and i also know that you've done some writing on you know inequality earnings inequality yeah so I wonder if we should start with sort of what are some of your findings in terms of the rise in inequality uh, as it pertains to you know, earnings and, and, and firms? And then perhaps we could start to, to link that into our, into our current context. Well, so inequality has gone up dramatically since the 80s. So, you know, inequality uh, has been a continuously rising for about the last 40 years. And now it's at incredible levels. So, for example, in the US and the UK look very similar. Roughly 20% of income goes to the richest 1%. And it's heading towards, you know, it's above 20% now. You know, the COVID, the lockdown is very problematic. I mentioned working from home is one issue. The other issue is these government schemes, basically. Take the US example. It gives you uh, unemployment insurance and a stimulus check, but only if you pay taxes last year. So we know about 10% of the US economy is cash in hand. Like, you know, think of many people have a gardener, a nanny, or, you know, cleaners, or people that do construction work are basically paid in cash. And if those people didn't report their earnings to the IRS, which honestly, probably a lot of them didn't, or certainly in full, they wouldn't get much stimulus. And you could argue that, look, maybe they should have paid taxes in advance, but they're pretty low income earners. And then that means they're in serious trouble because their jobs have probably disappeared because they're almost all face-to-face -face jobs that have been ended. Plus, they have no stimulus payments. So that is, you know, the thing that makes me really worried is people literally, I mean, you know, that's like starving to death if you have no income. They're, right now, they'll probably be getting along. Most of the survey data suggests they're getting along off, you know, support from friends and family. But that won't last forever. 
Um, so that is a serious welfare issue. And, you know, I would be very angry if I was locked down under those circumstances. I couldn't feed my family and I couldn't, I mean, I'm fine in the sense I'm, Stanford University continuing to pay me and I can teach and do research from home, but I'm aware I'm in very much in like the, the luckiest part of society. Yeah. So, so it seems like that this, this situation could exacerbate the, the current conditions, but can we talk about that a little bit? So what did you find in terms of the, the earnings inequality and how it played out within firms and across firms, you know, just sort of paint that picture a little bit for us. Sure. So we looked at before COVID, before COVID, we found two thirds of the increase in inequality was between firms. So what I mean is you can look at are people becoming more unequal within each firm or is it that some firms are becoming superstars and others aren't? And it tends to be mainly the latter. And it's kind of not that, you know, surprising when you think about it. So we're having firms like Google and Facebook and Amazon that are doing incredibly well. In fact, Amazon's a bit unusual. Actually. Amazon's probably not a good example because within the firm, there's a lot of inequality. But on average, most firms, a lot of the high-tech firms are paying all of their workers extremely well. Uh, so the entire firm, the salaries are going up and there are other firms that are struggling. So, you know, traditional manufacturers. Part of it is kind of a restructuring society. So if you think of actually a lot of these high-tech firms, if you walk around the company, you'd be amazed to know that many of the people you see aren't actually their employees. So if you visit, uh, you know, Google, of course, the security guards, the cleaners, the caterers aren't Google employees. They're subcontractors and they're typically are not great wages. Many of the people actually sitting at desk coding are actually contractors. And, you know, there's, there's a mix of how they're, how they're paid. So it turns out that firms are pretty linked to inequality. And there's been this whole literature concerned about superstar firms and, you know, monopolization of markets and we definitely find some evidence of that and we've you know that seems to be connected to the increase in inequality in my own personal view that's not the primary driver i think the primary driver is you know computerization and advancing technologies basically educated people do really well out of computers we can use them in our jobs and robots they tend to you know complement us make us more effective whereas people that are less school at 16 computerizations, AR robots are much more of a threat. They often replace you. You know, a robot comes along and does the job you used to be doing. And that seems to be the primary driver of rising inequality. Right. Uh, rather than, you know, the management getting greedy and taking all of the earnings of the firm and, and giving it to the sort of management class, you see it more as a, a broader brush technological... Well, it's both. So, uh, you know, capitalism tends to drive this. So capitalism means... If something comes on, like there's a new technology, imagine a new technology came along and meant that you could replace everyone cleaners. You had robo cleaners that were fantastic at cleaning offices. What's going to happen is, of course, pretty rapidly, every firm's going to be forced to adopt them. Because if you don't adopt them, your profits are going to go down and it, you know, your shareholders are going to say, what are you doing as the CEO of this company? You're losing money. You're not making as much money. The others either adopt robo cleaners or get out of here. And so capitalism is, you know, unfortunately, very ruthless about forcing these new technologies into companies. Now, I'm generally in favor of capitalism. Don't get me wrong. The reason that we have capitalism is because it's better than the alternative. It's kind of like Churchill's quote about democracy. You know, it's the worst form of, it's like it's one of the worst form of governments that's better than all the others. It's, you know, the alternative capitalism is socialism, which, you know, if you've ever visited, I'm old enough to have been to the old Soviet Union, you know, before it was, when it was still under communism. It's a pretty appalling place to live. But yes, capitalism needs control. It needs government to come in and try and say tax us and redistribute income. So I'm totally, you know, I'm definitely not a total free market capitalist because then you do find managers and CEOs do incredibly well. And, you know, you can find workers lose their jobs and they have 
you know, no future. Robots have replaced them are cheaper. That's interesting. So you see, you see the onus here on being in governments playing a redistributive role rather than us potentially changing company culture or doing anything at the sort of the firm level or the management level to address this. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to think. So one, one view is you could tell firms, hey, look, you shouldn't be, take the robo cleaners. So we got robot as a good example. Robot cleaners come along, they're cheaper than regular cleaners. So for firms that use a lot of cleaners, that's a big element of cost. And so they're going to be under huge pressure from their shareholders. Now you could say we shouldn't put pressure on the CEOs. The issue is, though, that all of us that have pensions, which is, you know, most people, our pensions invested in these companies. We put in rules to force CEOs to make money because we wanted to stop them goofing off and spending all the cash on private jets and golfing holidays, et cetera. So there's a lot of reasons why we put pressure on CEOs to be profitable. And most of it is to stop them, frankly, kind of being lazy or stealing, uh, you know, or putting their kids in charge of management positions. But the problem is going along with that is the fact they end up being you know, ruthless on workers. So I think government's important, but primarily to try and retrain people that lose their jobs and also have a tax system that meant, you know, for example, Chinese competition wipes out your factory. You're not left starving or forced to commit crime. You actually get a retraining program and there's a new job that, or, you know, unemployment insurance while you're looking for work. Right. And, and the sort of, and what about this development with Jamie Dimon and the, biz, the business roundtable and saying, hey, we're, gonna, we're not going to put shareholders at the top of our list. We're kind of going to reimagine capitalism to some extent. We're going to move towards more of a, a sort of a stakeholder capitalism model. Um, what, what's your take on that in terms of this sort of this movement around conscious capitalism and, and, and rethinking, you know, the rules of capitalism, if you like? I like that. I, I mean, that's kind of trying to take a, I think it's a good idea. So, you know, I think if CEOs can get away with doing things that are pro the environment, pro workers, that's definitely positive. Always the challenge is we put pressure on CEOs through a lot of corporate governance reforms to try and maximize profits because frankly, otherwise they can do things, you know, pretty bad stuff, including stealing money from companies. So, you know, there's endless scandals where CEOs haven't been, you know, under, under the close eye of, you know, some shareholders and you discover they've stolen a lot of money. So, if they can do it themselves internally, that's great. And Jamie Dimon, I'm a big believer in, you know, uh, BlackRock has been doing something similar with investing, ethical investing. I like that. I don't want us to be investing in climate destroying companies. I just think that's likely not to be enough. So I think governments have definitely have a role to step in and bolster this. And it's fair. Like if I'm a company, I'm like, imagine I'm one of 10, you know, restaurant chains in a city. I may be happy to pay my workers more. It's just hard for me to do it if no, none of my competitors do because I'm the company. Whereas if the government comes along and says, I'm going to make you all pay a minimum wage, I may be, I'm probably happy to do it because I just, you know, put the prices up a little bit and I don't, you know, not much and I don't being risk being undercut by my competitors. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, what, what's brought to mind, this has come up a few times on the podcast, actually, is there's this, this guy, CEO, who's, I don't know if you've read about it, he, he chose to pay all of his staff 70, I think it's $70,000 US, the Gravity Company. Right. And, the, and the predictions were, okay, you know, we've got a socialist running the company. You know, this is going to, this is going to be a disaster. And two years later, the firm's still growing. Uh, they're, they're doing fine. So we do have these examples, it seems to me, of, of, of leaders taking on upon themselves to enact some, some fairer form of capitalism and, no, and somehow succeeding. That's great. I mean, Henry Ford, there's two fantastic examples from history. Henry Ford famously had the $5 a day guarantee so in the great depression uh most u.s firms were paying nowhere near that and he offered five dollars a day and his view was he was partly 
uh, doing it for the world with the workers. And partly at the view, you wanted people that really wanted to work in his firm, loved that job. You know, we really wanted to have positively selected and motivated people. Or I also teach a case study every year. The most popular Harvard Business School case study of all time is in a company called Lincoln Electric. And Lincoln Electric pays roughly twice what its competitors do uh, to workers. But it does that by giving them piece rate pay systems. And the workers are phenomenally productive. And Lincoln Electric is now one of the largest you know, manufacturing companies in the world. So, yeah, there are definitely different ways to do it. Um, I just want to make sure, you know, it isn't the case that every firm is forced in a race to the bottom to be the cheapest, lowest wage company because you fear you're going to be beaten up and destroyed by your competitors. That is where governments have to come in. And that's partly why we elect, you know, coming back to politics, why we democratically elect governments. And most people think we should have that kind of regulation because it's good for society. We vote in a government that sets it in, in scheme. And, you know, notice the Americans are somewhat different from the British and the Europeans. The American electorate for you know, historical reasons is more free market and tends to vote for governments that are less regulatory. And, you know, the Southern Europeans are very different. Yeah. I think it's just my fear, though, that um, if if the sort of management class, if you like, or, or if business leaders don't take some of the burden of this, right, and don't take some of this on themselves, then what will happen is, or the, the risk is that democracies will elect you know, either far right or far left governments as a way to address these problems. And actually, we end up in a in a in a bigger mess. No, I agree. I, I don't get me wrong. I, you know, I like the Jamie Diamonds and, you know, the social investing. Also, just to be clear, in business schools, there's a large component now that's teaching ethics. So a big part of business school education is about doing right by the environment, doing right by your workers, not lying, etc. The reason I I don't think it's entirely enough for CEOs to do it. Is they're under immense pressure. So, you know, it's like football managers. So, you know, everyone follows the Premier League. You know, you notice the number of, you know, teams. I support Tottenham Hotspur and, you know, uh, Potticino, who seemed to have done fantastic, was fired within, you know, three months of the season. Well, CEOs are under similar pressure unless they generate fantastic returns. And the stock market is very visible, particularly publicly listed CEOs. It's like a football team where you play every day, every minute. Uh, they're being tracked. And unless you do well, you find pretty fast, you know, some either your own shareholders or someone buys your company and kicks you out. And so it's kind of hard to say they both got to have fantastic returns and, you know, pay workers fairly. And so we can push them in that direction. But I think they need additional support from the government. Otherwise, I just don't think you'll see enough. That's it. And that's why yeah. we have environmental regulations. I'm totally in favor of pollution regulations. You completely have them. We can't rely entirely on firms doing it. They need support. Yeah, yeah. No, fair enough. Fair enough. I, I guess I'm I lean towards more of the voluntary uh, responses. But you know, I, I yeah, it, I think I think you're right to point out that maybe we can't expect all, you know, everyone to do it alone without some level of, as you say, support slash coercion, right? Yeah, I mean, the painful thing that these guys out there called corporate raiders. So if you remember that film, for example, Pretty Woman, it's a very old film with Richard Gere. But there's a whole mm. series of corporate raiders. They're often called private equity firms. Uh, the PE firms are slightly different, but the old school corporate raiders said spot a company that they deemed was undervalued. And one reason maybe the manager or the CEO is being particularly generous to workers and is you know using environmentally sensitive products. And a corporate raider can come in, buy all the shares, say we're going to install a new ruthless type of manager that's going to slash wages and you know pump pollution out. The company is now going to make more profits and I'm going to make money out of it. So it doesn't even need the current shareholders to be, you know, 
to not care about this. You just need somebody out there that comes in and raids the company. And that, there's plenty of examples of that in history. Uh, you know, that's in some ways the dark side of capitalism. You know, again, I'm a big supporter of capitalism. It generally delivers growth. It's far from perfect, but it has a lot of downsides like inequality and, you know, too much. So it needs regulation. You know, so, you know, if you have teenagers, uh, you want to let them make their own decisions, but within limits, you know, if you have, it's kind of like, I set some framework for my teenage kids and I kind of let them want to get on with stuff, but you also definitely want to put constraints on it and they go off the rails, haul them in. And that's the same way with our market. The government is like hopefully the parents for these firms. You want to let them basically get on with it. That's how firms co operate the best is unregulated. But when they start to do things that I think we don't want a society, we have to regulate. Yeah. But I, well, it's, I agree with that, but it's also encouraging that we're starting to, you're telling me from Stanford, right? That we're starting to incorporate ethics into our yeah, program, management programs. Uh, that's, that's encouraging to me. Well, that, that was a big change post 2008, 2009. So there, are cut, there was an earlier wave. So if you remember, I mean, this has been here for a long time, but there was the scandal, the accounting scandals in the early 2000s with Enron and Wellcom was a kind of, you know, a wake up call. And then in 2008, 2009, it became very clear there was huge problems with, you know, corporate fraud and banks selling stuff they shouldn't have been selling, you know, ninja mortgages, no income, no job, no problem. And just, you know, basically what you could think of as corporate corruption. And there was a big pickup in ethics being taught in business schools. And that was more business ethics. I think with, you know, the current protest to be much more emphasis as well, correctly placed on, you know, discrimination, you know, both racial, gender, everything else, trying to stamp out and make firms as inclusive as possible. And one of the ways you drive change is through business school curriculums, because the people that take MBA classes often are very influential in society. I think it's appropriate, as with undergrads, I'd say Stanford undergrads have similar courses as well as part of educating people to take part in society. I mean, it, my kids are not in university yet, but I would want them to go to the same thing. You want, you know, we want to bring up people and members of society who feel proud of, and that includes doing the right thing. Yeah, I think so. I, I, I think, and I think there's something about the, yeah, the, the personal ethics, but I also think, and, and business ethics, but also the, the framing, right? The, the, the sort of intellectual and philosophical framing of the game called capitalism, right? I, I think that's something that we need to put, put focus on, put attention on. I, yeah, I mean, yeah. you have in the US, I see the debate. So on the right, Remember, the U.S. was founded by, you know, in sense, the, the, this concept of the Pilgrim Fathers and escaping religious persecution in the, in the U U.K. And so a lot of Americans came to the U.S. with a hatred of government. And that's very, as a, you know, I'm a dual citizen now. I've lived in America for the last 15 years and obviously in the U.K. before that for the previous 32 years. So um, there's the sense over here, uh, particularly in the more red states, we want to escape government and government's kind of evil and trying to control us too much. But on the other hand, you know, the free market can go totally overboard. And so, you know, in Southern Europe, there's much more of a sense. If you go to Italy, people complaining about evil, you know, evil companies. And so I get the sense, you know, the British are somewhere in between. And my personal view is somewhere between. I like capitalism. It's probably the best way, to, you know, to run society, but it definitely needs constraints. Otherwise, you get extreme inequality. I mean, inequality is a huge problem of our time. The fact that it turns out that the benefits of new technologies, everything that's coming flooding out of silicon valley is only really accruing to a few people so the very college educated people university degrees do fantastically well out of all this new high-tech technology but unfortunately people that left school at 16 say really don't and it's one thing saying we should educate current people in school but if you've got a 40 year old that left school you know 20, 25 years ago 
it's kind of hard to bring them up to the level that may need to, to be using you know all of new technology in a society you want to be supporting them on that but also supporting them through more income yeah Okay, good. Well, we've <laughs> we've gone from uh, you know the challenges of uh, working from home to um, yeah to the broader yeah the broader issues that we're facing. Um, been a fantastic conversation. I know that you need to get to to lunch with your children. And so, how many kids are you living at home with? Uh, makes it sound like there's an enormous you know twenty seven actually. No, no, I have uh, four kids. Four so, kids. Two high schoolers. Uh, one middle schooler and a four-year-old so they're a bit spread out but uh and do you yeah, have schooling them well kind of i mean they all go to regular school but obviously the lockdown has ended that uh not really a bit you know like there's much more dad can you help this that because i'm a professor i still because you know in economics profession, you still do a fair bit of maths i mean i'm not proclaiming my maths is fantastic but i can do most high school maths up to high school maths so and I kind of remember, I mean, I'm a bit of a geek, to be honest. I quite enjoyed school. Uh, so I remember bits of physics and chemistry and um, little bits of history. So, yeah, there's some homeschooling going on, not a lot. As much of it, it's like emotional support because it's pretty depressed, particularly with a teenager. It's soul destroying. I mean, I remember as a teenager going out and having fun. And for current teenagers stuck at home, oh, it's awful. I feel the worst for you know, it's kind of people that finished in the US, same in the UK, that when you basically get to 18, you finish high school or finish your A-levels and you want to go out and party for that summer. I mean, that's, you know, your, your O-levels, your GCSEs. You're like, you're out. You're, you want to have a summer of fun. And, you know, these people are locked down under COVID. Or university graduates, they're the other group that are, in some senses, many of them have graduated, didn't have a job lined up before COVID. And they're now graduating into an economy where it's really hard to get a job. Actually, interestingly enough, some of the research I've been doing, you see there's still a fair amount of hiring going on with COVID. So for every 10 jobs that are lost, there are three more being created. But they're primarily in, uh, they're primarily lower paid jobs. There's a lot of food delivery, you know, Amazon's hiring like crazy, Walmart's hiring a lot, there's a lot of cleaning jobs. But if you're looking for a graduate entry job, it's extremely hard to get one right now. In part because there's very little hiring because of the recession, but in part because no one wants to onboard somebody working from home. So, you know, hiring of graduates is almost completely dried up. So they're the people, that's another group I feel pretty bad for. But it's hit them very hard. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, now I can imagine. Um, and where are you personally on your sort of, are you, are you past the honeymoon? Are you ready to get <laughs> out there again? I. It's much easier if you are... I mean, I'm in like, I'm a, totally where I'm very fortunate. I'm married with kids. My kids are at home. I have a house uh, and my employer, Stanford, is not going to go bankrupt, you know, any day soon at least. So um, it isn't too bad for me. I mean, I, I would like to be out for sure. I'm, you know, I feel cooped up and it's getting a bit depressive being indoors all the time. And I miss my colleagues and miss travel, et cetera. But I, there are people in far worse situations. So in that sense, I've, I'm pretty fortunate. Right. And you miss your colleagues and you said, cause it, cause that comes from research, right? The, the one thing that people seem to miss that came out, came through was they missed the social interaction. That's what people start yeah, to miss much. after a people, or at least, at least a, a large percentage of people start, start to miss that. Yeah. Yeah, very much. Three months in was roughly the honeymoon period. Mm. So in the experiment in China, when we had people work from home for nine months for the first three months, they were like really happy. And then for three months onwards, they started to wane. And by six months, they were wanting to come back into the office. Mm. So 
yeah, I hate to say it, but I think if you're feeling lonely now, it's kind of, which I, you know, I feel a bit lonely and I'm lucky. I've got five other people in the house with my wife and kids. But if you're feeling lonely now, it's definitely, uh, it's going to get harder as things go on. And, I, you know, it's hard to know how lockdown's evolving. It's, it's very on and off the process right now. The other issue is just personally, it's not clear to me how sociable you can be going into the office. If you're wearing a mask, it's hard to feel kind of, you know, human warmth, uh, talking to someone at a distance, both wearing masks when, you know, someone comes to wipe down the surface you're on every 10 minutes. Yeah, so, no, I can imagine that. We, we don't, we're not, ha- so I'm in a co-working space right now and we're not having to work, uh, wear masks. Um, and I suppose uh, we, we try to keep our social distancing, but it's, that still allows actually for, you know, for chats by the, you know, by the, the kettle and, yeah, so there's 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 some level of social interaction, but of course it's also empty, right? The building's completely where empty. Are you just, where are you based? So I'm near Cambridge in in the UK, and that's where our our co-working space is. But yeah, so um, but yeah, it's still I, I'm hankering after it. I mean, I've got two kids in the house and a partner, and yes, yeah, um, I'm definitely hankering for more social interaction. We're starting to open up here, and London's starting to open up, so I'm hoping that fairly soon I'll start to be able to venture into the cities a bit and do a little bit of socializing but yeah it's yeah it's going to be uh yeah it's, it's going to be i think tough for a lot of people for the for, for the foreseeable actually or at least there'll be some level of toughness should we say yeah. yeah yeah okay well thank you so much it's been a fantastic conversation uh i will let you get to your lunch um and uh, I wish you, I wish you the best with the rest of it. And what's are you going to continue to do the research? I guess it's going to be very yeah. interesting to see for you, especially how this is going to evolve this whole picture. Yep. We are running, uh, we have another survey in the field now. We're about to run another wave interviewing another two and a half thousand Americans. Wow. Find out what they're doing exactly this week. So yeah, it is fascinating. Things are still changing very fast, actually. So I will keep you updated. You know, how working from home works out. You know, hopefully inequality doesn't, well, let's see. I mean, there's, there's very dark sides of inequality and political polarization. Working well, that's right. And, and I, yeah, that is, you know, aside from the sort of personal psychological effects that, you know, that just for people working from home, but yeah, the bigger inequality picture, it does definitely cause me concern. Um, yeah. Uh, and that's why I think it's important for us to be considering, yeah, the, the ethical questions we've touched on in this interview, but yeah. I think we're going to have to take them much more seriously over the next few years. Great. Hey, thanks very much for having me on the show, Richard. Thank you. Thanks, Nick. And uh, we'll put the links to your papers and, uh, you know, your profile and so on in, in, in the description. So Great. thanks again. Cheers. Okay, okay bye. bye. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.